Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast all about books about music. I'm Jude Rogers, journalist, broadcaster and author of White Rabbit title, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. Today's guest is a writer whose work I first came across in the early 2000s when I was in my early years in London. Somewhere in Soho, I picked up bass culture, his exhaustive, brilliant history of reggae music, which took its readers vividly from its origins in Jamaica through the artists who took its sounds around the world, like Bob Marley, King Tubby, Prince Buster, and many more. Before then, he was a seasoned music journalist working for everybody, basically. Q, Mojo, GQ, The Observer, Smash Hits, among many other titles. And his first interview was with James Brown, more of which later. His 2013 book, Sounds Like London, A Hundred Years of Black Music in the Capital, is also a wonderful read, taking us from Calypso to free jazz, the massive impact of sound systems to grime and beyond. He's currently writing Funk is Its Own Reward, the story of 1970s soul music, which involves George Clinton, a man who, funnily enough, gave him his break in music journalism. And outside music, he's also very talented, a veteran marathon runner and writer on that pursuit, plus a trained chef. I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast, Lloyd Bradley. Hey, Lloyd, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. <laughs> and trying to live up to that um, introduction. <laughs> well, you join us from White Rabbit and Orion HQ today in central London. You've got a big notice board behind you, which I thought was... Uh, you know, with your spider webs and plans for your next oh, book. Oh, get out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people plan these things in different ways. I literally have oh, a yeah. notice board to my, um, kind of in front of my laptop to the left, which still has post-it notes with the chapter titles for my book on it. I haven't taken them off yet. I'm so messy. Um, uh, I, I try and remember stuff and, and if don't. I mean, when I finished Base Culture, I thought I'd finished. And <laughs> I came across... Uh, a whole bunch of stuff I'd written about Studio One, which is the most important <laughs> label in reggae's history, and I'd forgotten to put it in the book. So, you know, there has to be something said for keeping spidergrams and post-it notes and stuff. <laughs> exactly. Now, please tell us about George Clinton and his role in your, you know, in your victories and successes. <laughs> George, uh, that was, uh, I was very funny, actually, because... Uh, I had no intention of writing about music. I was quite happy cooking. It was just, you know, I mean, it's hard work, but it was a laugh. And um, a friend of mine, good friend of mine, we're both big Funkadelic fans, Funkadelic. And yeah, Parliament was happening about that by that time as well. And um, he was a printer and used to print for Pi Records, which Parliament were on Pi. And... Uh, he printed some press release. This is, again, before the internet and whatnot, you know, where everything had to be printed and sent out, about George Clinton going to review the singles at Blues and Soul, which was uh, a magazine in London, or offices in London. 
he said, if we go down there, hang about outside, maybe we can get to meet him, just shake his hand. So I said, yeah, all right, you know. Um, we went along, and a limo pulled up. George, his in-house press officer, Tom, and the Pie Records fellow, Graham Betts, all got out. And so we walked over to it, and we were shaking hands, introduced ourselves and that. And then a couple of the guys from Blues and Soul came down because they'd seen the limo pull up. Now, George and Tom thought we were with Blues and Soul. Blues and Soul thought we were with George and Tom. So we just wandered into the offices with them. George got put in this room to review the singles for that thing. And we went in with him <laughs> and spent, you know, a very entertaining afternoon reviewing the singles for Blues and Soul with George Clinton. <laughs> And then all went off, came downstairs. Tom and Graham returned from somewhere else. The car came back. Tom, George and Graham got in the car. The guys from Blues and Soul said, well, weren't you going with them? We said, no, we didn't arrive with them. We just met them. And so we had a good laugh about that. You're in the right place and at the right time. That was it. And very funny story about that because we stayed in contact, George and I, you know, um, I went out to America, did a tour with P-Funk, this sort of stuff. And um, when my son was born um, 35 years ago, he we named him George after George Clinton, Charlie George, and George Graham. So got all of that covered. Yeah. And um, we, me and my wife were out one afternoon, came back, and there was a big box on our porch. We took it in. It was dressed to me, opened it up. And there was a gift-wrapped box inside. So we went down, and there was loads of um, tissue paper and that in. Inside was this absolutely immaculate set of thermal underwear for a baby, like <laughs> tiny little thermal T-shirts and long johns, and this absolutely lovely woolen hoodie with little knitted ducks as the buttons, you know? Yeah absolutely beautiful this stuff and right at the bottom of this box was a card and it said i heard you had a baby called george george clinton oh, brilliant amazing. Eh? oh fantastic <laughs> <laughs> wow and I, I mean we had just had such a good laugh just thinking of george going out choosing baby clothes <laughs> so yeah um that kicked it all off and we, i stayed in touch with blues and soul you know because they thought we were a couple of smart guys and we'd arranged to see George and Tom after one of the shows. So they wanted to know what we could get from that mm. and all of this. And it just went on from there, you know, after about a year of kind of juggling, writing and my shifts cooking, yeah. I thought I've got to give one or the other up. So I gave up cooking. You wrote for Q and Smash Hits in their early days as well. I only wrote for Smash Hits. I only wrote for Smash Hits once. Oh, right? really? I found some reviews of yours <laughs> online. Maybe a couple of record reviews got in there, but I only did one feature for them, and that's that's hilarious because um, do you remember Shaking Stevens? Of course, I'm yeah. a Welsh woman. Of course, national hero. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, there, there was a time when I was the only journalist in. Um, England that Shake and Stevens would talk to. Oh. I was Shakey's envoy on earth. <laughs> and so the only way Smash Hits could get a piece on Shake and Stevens was with, if I did it. Oh, brilliant. So um, I did it. 
Yeah, that was the only time I worked for Smash Hits. And um, you worked at Q Magazine from day two, you know, must be... Uh... Yeah, issue two. I came into the office when issue one was being delivered. So it was the same day as issue one was delivered, was the same day I first went into the office. So everybody was really excited. Yeah. First issue of this groundbreaking magazine. And everybody was just so nice, you know. Um, it was a... I'm, I'm not kidding. I still say it, right? Q Magazine, maybe Mojo under Matt Snow could give it a run, but Q Magazine was such a lovely place, lovely office to be in. Mm. And that was 19, back in 1986, so you had... Um, yeah, 86, yeah. Yeah, colleagues that I worked with, actually, Mark Ellen, David Hepworth, you know, them, that whole gang, fantastic. Um, I'm going to ask you the three questions I ask every songbook guest. Now, who... I did say I probably couldn't answer. <laughs> we'll give we'll, it a go. We'll try anyway. <laughs> we'll give it a go. Who was the very first musical artist or act that you loved? I would say either Jimi Hendrix or James Brown. I couldn't pick between the two of them. Or, I mean, but in that space, you've got to put the Beatles in as well because when I grew up, the Beatles were just so much part of the air around you it's like you couldn't avoid the Beatles they were they were everywhere so how old are you then well I was born in 55 mm. so it must have been from the beginning you know I mean my brother my older brother was a mad Beatles fan and we um we shared a room for ages so I had to listen to what <laughs> he listened to so when you're like eight or nine yeah that is the age that everything yeah. starts to Barrel in. Yeah. My little boy is that age now, and it's the age that uh, the ears start to really open. It was probably about the time that Top of the Pop started. I can't remember when that was, but I remember that being a, quite an event. Yeah. That, like pop music was on top of the on television, you know, with its own program. Who was the first writer on music you loved, or a writer that you really latched onto? I didn't. I mean, I th I strongly believe. The only people that are remotely interested in writers' names when they read music papers and that are people who want to be music journalists. <laughs> and, and I didn't, so I didn't pay attention. I mean, probably, you know, I was meeting people and, I, you know, it was so much part of my conversation was, blimey, did you write that? Because you know, <laughs> I had no idea who wrote what, you know. I mean, at Q, I think it was probably at the NME and Q that I got to. But then I was there. I wasn't a reader. I was a writer for them. And I would say, you know, the writers that I enjoyed reading most were probably Paul DeNoyer, the late Andy Gill, the late Gavin Martin. And then at Q, it was Phil Sutcliffe, Mark Cooper, Dave Hepworth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Paul DeNoyer, my oh, great mentor. And and Tom Hibbert. Oh, of course, yeah. With the who the God, hell? That's, that's three people I just said are dead. This is <laughs> terrible, isn't it? You know. well, people whose um, work is still out there in different forms and should still be read. I, I really agree with you. Um, uh, this question might be a difficult one as well. Then, what was the first music book you loved? You know, maybe in the context of you, you know, approaching writing music books yourself. Well, I suppose it would have to be music books that I wrote. Really. <laughs> I mean, I, the thing was, when I was 
until recently, there was no music book, music books that spoke to me about what I was looking for in music or what, how I viewed music didn't exist. They, it's only, I'd say, in the last 20 years that they have. Mm. You know, I mean, Bass Culture came out in 1990, no, um, 22 years ago. When would that be? 1999 it first came out, right? And it was the first book about reggae written by a black man. And that's the first book, you know. Mm. And so, so, And that's what music books were like, you know. They were... You know what publishing's like. It's full of posh white people. Mm. And it was essentially music books about black music were written by white people from a white person's point of view. And they covered two aspects. It was um, uh, he's, he or she is here to entertain us with their pain or here is some explanation about their innate sense of rhythm. And that's mm. all these books did. There was there was never anything that put anything in context. Yeah, well, or gave, or even gave the subject themselves credit for anything. You know, it was all seen through the lens of being a white consumer of black music. So I couldn't, you know, the books meant nothing yeah. to me. I, I might have picked them up and looked at them, but never read them. And and in the last twenty years, you know. As you say, things are have changed and are changing. There's still a long way to go in many respects in the publishing industry. Are there any, you know, any writers that have particularly stood out for you, or any coverage of subjects that have particularly stood out for you? Well, yeah, I mean, again, I, I sort of don't pay attention to who's written what in magazines, mm. but I mean, you know, back in the sixties, there was only really Soul magazine that this woman Regina. Regina Jones, I think, used to do from Los Angeles. But recently, you know, magazines like Vibe, the Mm. one Quincy Jones started, um, that sort of stuff have been much better. You know, um, there's been a black take on black music has come through in magazines. This is probably in the last 20 years. You know, I think the internet has changed loads of this because, you know, someone like... um, Oh, the guy who started SBTV, he died recently. Oh, Jamal Edwards. Yeah, stuff like mm. Jamal Edwards couldn't have existed 20 years yeah. ago, but because the internet's there, it can. You know, yeah. all the grime kids that did exactly what they wanted without record companies, through pirate radio, that sort of stuff. I mean, that couldn't have happened um, 20 years ago. So now I think the publishing industry has had to... Had to uh, I don't, uh, just pay attention to that. They've still got a ridiculous way to go. Mm. You know, I mean, I won't bore you with some of my personal travails, but you know, um, it's now. I think it's yeah, with YouTube, with pirate radio, with the internet, with blogs, all all sorts of things can be represented properly. Probably, but when I was younger, just nothing. Now, on to today's book, which you enthusiastically recommended to me. So I bought it a few weeks ago. I remembered it receiving gushing reviews when it was published a few years back. Um, Its writer is a 
uh, American mainstay of music writing. He's written 11 acclaimed books, many of them about music and social history wrapped together. Um, One of them, Love Songs, A Hidden History, I lapped up last year when I was writing a chapter in my book about um, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas' heat wave and the impact of love songs on us when we're young adults. Um, The premise of this one is thrilling. I'm just going to read the blurb from the back. How histories of music overwhelmingly suppress stories of the outsiders and rebels who created musical revolutions and instead celebrate the mainstream assimilators who borrowed innovations, diluted their impact and disguised their sources. And Lloyd, there's a quote from you in the back of my copy. The highlights is there? there is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Only the very best. The the highlights are too many to list. Um, Goya knows how to tell a story in a way that will keep people reading from a review you wrote in the Times Literary Supplement. So the book is Music, A Subversive History by Ted Goya. Now, Lloyd, can you tell the listeners who Ted Goya is, for those who don't know him, what he does and what he's good at? Um, no. <laughs> I, I don't really know. I mean, you've just told me an awful lot. I know, I remember talking to some about three years ago about this book and they said oh I loved his book on jazz so he's written a book on jazz um I was given this book by the Times Literary Supplement to review Mm. and I just thought it was amazing I really thought it was brilliant but I have in spite of meaning to I haven't looked for any other uh books by this chap but uh i I would recommend any of them on the strength of this, whatever else he's written. I looked for his jazz book and I was when uh, my friend said to me about his book on jazz. And I don't know if it's the same one, but it was called How to Listen yeah. to Jazz. How to Listen to Jazz, yeah. It's supposed to be fantastic. And, and that's great. I mean, anything with a title like that, How to Listen to Jazz, has got to be brilliant because straight away it's telling you that, like, most people don't have a clue when it comes to jazz. And although they'd sort of like to like it, they kind of don't know how to. So to title that book that, the book must be great. He's written, um, yeah, several books about jazz. He's, um, as I say, his book about love songs is about, you know, again, the context of these songs. And it goes, it's not just a book about music and love songs. It's about love songs and culture and human beings and you know, the way um, the business works, you know, um, and obviously this is the way that this book is structured too. I'll just um, um, mention um, what he writes in the preface. He's, you know, he hates the idea of music history. Um, He talks about how he conjures up images of men in wigs and waistcoats. There's a nice um, tone to a lot of his writing. Um, Chapter one is also called The Origin of Music as a Force of Creative Destruction, which is fantastic. And he calls the big band... He calls the Big Bang the original downbeat, which I loved. Um, so this is, there's this idea that um, you know creativity is really closely connected with destruction. Um, you know, and it made me think about you know the way we think of pop music in the late twentieth century. We think about movements like you know punk or um, you know a lot of the ways in which music was really shaken up by various immigrant communities to the UK. Um, I was wondering how you think about, what you think about that idea of creativity and destruction. I don't think uh, I'll, I wouldn't go so far as to say that all creativity is destruction, (laughs) but to move on, you've got to leave something behind. So if you're going to do something, then 
or, or do something new, then you're not rejecting, but leaving something behind. Maybe you're just building on it, but you've left it. You've moved on. So, yeah, I suppose from that point of view, you could almost say that creativity is destruction. What did you love about this book? Oh, uh, it's funny. It's <laughs> simple as that. You know, here's a bloke who, I mean, we're talking about pop music, for Christ's sake. It's not <laughs> going to change the world, you know? Um and here was a bloke that clearly saw it as that. And also, he just saw stuff, you know. It's like he would connect seemingly random facts and ideas and situations. And, of course, those connections made sense. He could make them make sense. You know? um, it was... I, I tell you, I think, right, it moved horizontally through music, through... 2,000 years of music, but at the same time, it moved vertically as often as possible to go into why things were what they were, you know, and and that was great. I, I, I liked someone that looked at the context of it, and I say, there's, there was one thing that he came to, sort of, this to me is the climax of this book, the real big takeaway, that from the very, very beginning, and we're going back to Pythagoras here, mm. that music was as always conformed to the same thing. And it's magic versus mathematics. Mm. And it starts off as magic. And then that's great. That's the real creativity or destruction, as you would have it. <laughs> and um, uh, that's the real creativity. Then people, hmm, yeah. Ah, right, I get that. Yes, I want to do some of that, whether it's for profit or just to look clever or whatever, and kind of break it down into its parts, and then it becomes mathematics and and flattens out almost. But the creators move on. They will invent something else. You know, that that's always been the way. Something else will bubble up. And I love the way that this is a recurring theme throughout this book, you know. So he starts it with Pythagoras, who kind of broke down music into sort of, I don't know, uh, numbers and patterns and this sort of stuff when people was just making it up, really, you know. And I suppose that was like the first algorithm or, well, we need that. We need it at that speed and that tempo and that will be a hit, you know, and all of that. So... I really loved all that. And the fact that he'd identified this and identified on the side of the creator, it was almost like, well, yeah. And so, I mean, as a really good example is I'm writing this book about funk at the moment. Funk was magic. It got co-opted into disco, which was the mathematics of funk. So the creators moved on and came up, bubbled up as hip-hop. So it's like, it's creators will always create more. And he knew this. And and this is what I loved about the way he was writing, you know. Yeah, and it has such a huge area that he covers. You know, I keep thinking of him, you know, feverishly typing away at this, you know, with, you know, all the you know, ancient Greeks and, you know, black music in the 19th century in his head at the same time, and then Beethoven and Wagner. And there's all these different things coming together and he's connecting all these you know, disparate threads. Um, he talks about how songs... Well, the thing is, um, that's... Sorry to interrupt, but that's actually not 
too difficult. That's kind of normal because people make yeah. these connections in their own heads. You know, it's like I don't know anybody who sort of only listens to sort of one type of music or this. Everybody has little bits of this and there's connections that join them all together, yeah. you know. Um, so he kept making these um, connections. And when he'd be talking about something you might not understand, you know, like, I don't know, 16th century Venetian music or something, he would relate that quite easily to Barry White yeah. or something <laughs> like that, you know. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What were um, the mad theories of his that stuck in your head? Do you remember any of them? Uh. Well, there was a great one about music as a a, com, a communal experience versus performance. And that was really interesting about how it shifts and it goes from performance, right, which is people sitting there in front of a musician and appreciating it, to the communal thing where kind of everybody's joining mm. in. And it goes in waves like this. I thought that was dead interesting. Um, this other theory about it was around Wagner that wanted to express themselves instead of um, writing for the courts or the nobility yes. anymore. Instead of writing to order, they wanted to write for themselves. Mm. I thought that was dead interesting. Again, so many of the things that he presents to you, you think, oh, yeah, of course, you know, like that, right? um, was the fact that so many cities were actually the same place. You know, people talk about, oh, Liverpool was this, it was unique and that. And, it was kind of the same as New Orleans and the same as Havana and the same as Venice. And the same forces were at work in each one. I thought that that was really interesting. Mm. Um, I loved the idea as well that he was brave enough to say the Beatles were a genre by themselves because so many people think that, but so few people say it. You know, they say, oh, the <laughs> Beatles were part of the 60s, part of the the rock thing and all that. No, they weren't, actually. They were a genre by themselves. I thought that was really interesting. Um, I've got that in my notes here. You know, you said everybody wanted to emulate them, but they kept changing all the time, so they kind of were very hard to emulate, and that's what made them really, really special. Um, actually, there was there was no maths involved. It was pure <laughs> magic yeah. from beginning to end. Yeah. I thought it was um, really interesting when he talked about... Um, you know, sung narratives, you know, descending from, you know, epic poems and how songs become political tools. Um, you've already said, um, you know, pop songs don't change the world, but, um, you know, the act of singing can often be, 
you know, by certain people, you know, political. Um, do you think of songs in that way? You know, um, especially thinking of the you know, areas of music that you've written about. Well, I think it's a bit of a myth that, like, you know, um, just because people are black, their music is going to be an anguished howl from the ghetto. I think. Oh, know, absolutely, um, absolutely. You know, ninety percent of anything you look at. I mean, you know, say people fixate on Bob Marley and roots reggae and the rebel of it and all of that, but ninety-five percent of reggae was love songs. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. pop music. Um, it's the same with soul and funk. You know. Uh, people love to sort of get this idea about, you know, oh, yeah, it's the, it's like, yeah, an anguished howl from the ghetto. But it's a lot of it was just sort of fun, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, but, but I do think that, um, yeah, a song can be a rallying cry. It can be, it can join people together, this kind of music, uh, communal experience of, singing a song or hearing a song like, I don't know, Move On Up by Curtis Mayfield or something like that, you know. But with so many songs like that, they're a reaction to what is already happening. They're almost a commentary on what is already happening rather than the spur for what is going to happen, you know. I mean, James Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud is a great example of that. He heard a crowd shouting it, so he put it in a song. Soul Power was another one, you know. He's doing a live show. The crowd is shouting Soul Power. He thought, hmm, I'll put a riff to that. Mm. Um, Recorded it that night and put it out as a single. You know, it's so much of this. It's like, right. And this isn't, um, I'm not saying this is uh, taking advantage of something that's going on. It's a fact that, Everybody thought that way, you know, people all, as I found out through the book I'm doing at the moment, as I found out when I was writing Bass Culture and that, you know, everybody was part of the movement, you know, thought about it. But whether that spilled into their professional life or not is another matter. You know, it's like you, you know, Isaac Hayes, for instance, right? uh, He was... I mean, you, you wouldn't say Isaac Hayes' songs were militant at all, you know, right? He covered a lot of Bacharach and Davis yeah, stuff, yeah. right? But um, he founded a group called the Memphis Black Knights, which was a communal and social group um, that helped uh, uh, poor black people uh, who have been victims of police violence, all this sort of stuff, you know. Otis Redding, another one, tried to form a union of black musicians everybody was part yeah. of it but whether this showed in what they did or not it's another matter you know yeah you mentioned james brown just then now he was your first interview <laughs> oh, yeah. um so you know i can't quite fathom what that must have been like when he's one of your the first artists that you loved you know um how did that come about and what was he like uh after uh, my meeting with George Clinton outside Blues and Soul. And I sort of stayed in touch with Blues and Soul. They gave me some records to review. And I can remember being really excited that I didn't have to give them back. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that feeling, yeah. (laughs) I get to take these home. They're going to give me records, you know, because, I mean, at that time, you know, I spent all my money on clothes and records. So the fact that I was actually getting records yeah. for free was incredible. Anyway, <laughs> I stayed in touch with uh, Blues and Soul. 
And they phoned me one day out of the blue. I don't know if someone had let them down or this had been arranged at short notice. Would I go and interview James Brown? And of course, I was too stupid to say, no, I can't do that. You know, that's totally beyond me. And I mean, he was nice enough, you know. Um, I think he sensed my discomfort and found it quite entertaining. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, really, it was Blues and Soul. It wasn't, you know, uh, you know, Newsweek or The New Yorker. And all I needed to do was come back with sort of half a dozen quotes about the new record yeah. or the shows, which somehow I managed. <laughs> um, and I had no idea about taping an interview. I was trying to write this down as he was talking to me, you know. Oh, my goodness. So, um, yeah, we got there in the end. And, uh, so when was this? I, How old are you? I think it would have been about 78, maybe mm. 79. Wow. So I would have been 23. I mean, I'd been cooking for years. I mean, I because I left school when I was 16, I think, 15, 16, and started cooking. So I'd been cooking for ages. So, yeah, I was... Yeah, I think it was 23, 24, maybe. And what kept you writing? You know, it's not necessarily the, you know, paychecks are writing, is it? It's kind of, uh, you know, the interest. It's the, you know, who you get to meet, what you get to learn. Well, yeah, those two there, who I got to meet and what I got to learn. Also, I kind of felt a bit um, representative, if Mm. you like, right? I mean... It didn't matter if it was uh, a black artist or not. There'd be no black writers at all would go and see them. And I think, well, somebody's got to fly the flag. And, you know, my mates wouldn't have let me stop. Yeah. Because they they all were really interested in what I was doing. They were really pleased that I was doing it. And if I'd said, now I'm going to pack it up and concentrate on cooking, they would have given me a really hard time. So I think the real thing that changed my mind was when um, I ended up again, completely fortuitously at the NME and thought, oh, actually, this is the big time. <laughs> I've made it. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, that, that was it, really. It was, a, it was interesting. And it was one of those things that I now know. I mean, you know, this was 40 years ago. And it's still really interesting. It can be as interesting as I want it to be. And everything is still a bit of a challenge. You know, writing-based culture was a Mm. challenge. Um, Writing Sounds Like London was ridiculous because there there was never a book that had put together the fact that, you know, I don't know, Lord Kitchener, Eddie Grant, Jazzy B and Dizzy Rascal were all the same person. (laughs) You know, it it was this thing that, you know, oh, no, that's grind, so that can't be this. Again, this is like... um, uh, music as subversive history. Yes. He makes these connections where people say, oh, how can you possibly make that connection? How can you possibly say that that is related to that, you know? And there'd never been a book that did that with um, uh, black music in Britain or British black music. So that was a challenge. Actually, with, um, with Bass Culture, I remember talking to my editor at Penguin at length about it and... Um, Telling him, quite nervously actually, because I didn't think how he'd he'd go for this, I said, I want to tell the story of Jamaican music that isn't the story of Bob Marley. Yeah. Because every other book is like, well, here's Bob Marley and some other stuff happened around him, but we're not going to bother about that too much, you know. And I wanted to say, 
tell the story from the sound systems and the producer's point of view, who had actually moved the music on. And he was, you know, so again, that was a challenge because especially among the kind of existing UK journalist crowd, people didn't believe this could be done, you know. And now um, doing funk as its own reward, it's talking about funk as a movement, a cultural movement rather than a baseline, you know. And that was a challenge, but I think I've got over it. Reading the Ted Goya book took me back to your Sounds Like London. Um, and it made me think about the beginning of that book. Um, and I remember that's when I was reading a lot about clip, getting into, you know, listening to oh, clips of records and thinking about this idea of Lord Kitchener being this figure that had a lot of attention for, you know, the microphone shoved in his face, the cameras in his face. And there's this idea that different black artists, you know, get this kind of pressure on them very early on to be representative, um, you know, oh, of yeah. a colour of skin. Um, I was thinking about, um, you know, what you said just now about you being, you know, the pressure that was on you to, you know, to stay as a journalist because you were, you know, representing a minority or minorities in a way that, you know, there's a pressure that lots, you know, most people, you know, don't have to face. That must have been quite a lot to deal with in in some respects, you know, feeling that you had to do it and you couldn't go elsewhere. Uh, It's only a pressure I put on myself. I mean, I don't... uh, And that was simply because I felt that, yeah, I needed to be there. I mean, other people might not have felt that, you know, that they needed to be there. But also, I mean, from, I think, a purely selfish point of view, I did actually think at one point, after a while, that I'm actually pretty good at this and maybe I could (laughs) carry on and and make a living out of it, you know. Um, Yeah, it was that really. It wasn't wasn't to make huge statements. It was more to almost introduce the mundanities of life, you know, the fact Mm. that not everybody was going to make a huge statement. I mean, Kitchener did as much as he had to, you know, the... The thing coming down the gangplank of the Windrush was obviously something he'd prepared for, yes. you know. And it was like, right, how can I launch my career? This will do it, you know. Um, now everybody in England knows who I am. Yes. <laughs> it was, it was a, a really shrewd move, actually, you know. So, um, yeah, there was a kind of normalcy about what I wanted to bring to it. I wanted to talk about why did you do that? I wanted to talk about... Um, a, a good example is jazz, for instance, right? It's um, the idea that so many jazz musicians were classically trained. Actually, so many funk musicians were classically trained as well. and Totally, you know, conservatory trained musicians, right? But the idea that, no, it must be some sort of innate sense of rhythm or mm. whatnot. No, people put a lot of work into it. And I wanted to make sure that was looked at, you know, the idea that people learn from their environment, their environment influenced them. They could study to do this. They did this because, you know, they had a story. They had fun. I mean, some of the people I've met over the sort of 40 years I've been doing this have been the funniest people you can ever <laughs> meet, you know. And, and yet nobody knows this, you know, the idea that you're here to represent the struggle, you know. Mm. I did this exhibition. It was, um, what's it called? Black Sound. Um, Black British Music's Journey of 
uh, DIY creativity. And I remember the, the first place we did it was the at the Black Cultural Archive. The bloke who ran it then, he said, um, oh, yeah, but you haven't put the struggle in there. But the point was 90% of this music wasn't about yeah. any struggle, you know? Um, it's that sort of thing that I wanted to, I wanted people to know about, or or artists to be able to talk about, you know, why and how they did things, you know. And I wanted to make sure that people at least got a chance to tell those stories. Yeah. Um, just to finish, I wanted to go back to this idea of music being magic or mathematics. You know, you mentioned algorithms. What do you think about um, creativity in the age of the algorithm? I think anything, you can do anything with anything. I think that's been proved, you know. I mean, look at grime, you know, what the original grime kids made grime from, you know. And so you can do anything with anything. And I think if you surrender to algorithms and we're being sort of sold music on that is made by algorithm and that's all there is, then that's obviously not a good thing. But if that's what, major record labels want to invest in, then good luck to them because anything can be done elsewhere. Grime, um, prove this. I keep coming back to grime because it's this kind of total sound system mentality of we're going to operate outside of the mainstream music business in the same way as, you know, Lovers Rock Reggae did, Jazzy B did with Soul to Soul, Jungle did, you know. Um, and it's like, yeah, we can do that now. We can make a record this afternoon, film a video on our phones this evening, put it up on YouTube mm. tomorrow morning. It's really exciting, you know, it's, yeah, actually, yeah. Oh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, it's honestly, I just think that it doesn't matter what major record labels decide for us now. You know, it always used to be, right, series of marketing meetings, here's what people are going to buy, right? doesn't matter anymore and it's not just limited to kind of the the sound system world you know now it's you can put your sound anywhere you know like what you make put it on your um what's it a digital pirate radio station your internet soundcloud or whatever <laughs> you know I, I i used to be on a pirate radio station we used to get raided they take our transmitter and it would cost so much to buy another one because you had to go to this bloke in Coventry who was apparently was the only person in the UK who could make transmitters for pirate radio stations. <laughs> and you had to go, and then, of course, pay whatever he wanted. So we'd have to keep a couple of dances to raise the money for a new transmitter. And then that would get taken oh, again about sort of, uh, three months later. But now... You and I could set up a pirate radio station this afternoon yeah. <laughs> if we wanted to, you know. So I think now, I mean, Sounds algorithms. Like <laughs> I've completely forgotten the question, but um, it was algorithms. <laughs> so, so what, you know? Um, yeah. Magic now has the chance to trump mathematics all the time. It's not this question of you've got to record a demo, you've got to take it to a record company you've got to see if it works and all of that you know now do it yourself so the magic can just keep going and it can be as broad as you like I I think like at the moment where music could go is it's never been so exciting or certainly not in my lifetime 
That's a good place to end. It's very uplifting. You're making me want to go and, you know, set up a pirate radio station, although it would be terrible and um, and and <laughs> my videos would be dreadful on YouTube. Um, thank you so much, Lloyd, for, for bringing Music of Subversive History to the to Songbook today. Um, you know, and all the conversations that have come, come from that have been so interesting. Um, the book is published in the UK by Basic Books. Now, to finish the podcasts, I'd love a few recommendations from you, if I can, you know, squeeze them out of you. Um, firstly, any other music books that you want to mention that you think are worth us buying and reading? Yeah, there's two books that I'd recommend to anybody, right? One is called Meet Me at Jim and Andy's by a fellow called Gene Lease, uh, L-E-E-S. He was uh, a, a renowned jazz writer and editor of Downbeat for a while. Jim and Andy's was a bar on 6th Avenue in New York. And in the 60s, it was the meeting place for um, jazz musicians. It was, it was very, it sort of backed onto a studio. It was very near where a lot of them would work. And so they met in there. And he uses this as a kind of jumping off point to write essays about these musicians. But he takes starts at the point that we all know they're genius musicians, therefore we don't need to talk about that. Let's get to know what they're like as people. And it's incredible. I mean, not all the stories are, are pretty, as you can imagine, but some of them are absolutely hilarious. These characters that you think, oh, these tortured jazz musicians ringing this um, music out of their saxophones and that, would actually go to this bar and muck about <laughs> all day long. And we're just cause I kind of very happy that what they were doing they, was better than working for a living, you know. And you realise that sort of these characters, you know, like Duke Ellington, Bill Evans and that, were just, they were just people mm. and and mucked about and had a laugh and really enjoyed what they were doing. So that is absolutely wonderful book. And it acknowledges the hard work and musical education that so many of these characters had, that they really did understand what they were doing. It wasn't innate, you know? And that that's a really big point to make, you know? There's another one called uh, Move On Up by a chap called Aaron Cohen. And it's about the Chicago music scene of the late 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. It's really interesting because... Up until now, I mean, what I was saying at the beginning of this podcast, that books on music didn't really interest me. They they just didn't appear to be written with me in mm. mind. Or, um, this one is. I mean, if you look at Chicago at that time, it's all people will write about is the chess label. And you kind of assume that, you know, two old guys and a couple of their sons, right, um, invented sort of music, you know, invented Howling Wolf yeah. and were entirely responsible for music and music culture in Chicago. This puts it deep in context, and it's amazing. I mean, some of the stuff I knew already, but the way he links so much of this to how it developed the music is incredible. It's like Chicago was a black city when it was founded. It was the, the first settlers in Chicago, the first non-native settlers in Chicago in the 18th century, end of the 18th century, were uh, free black slaves or, or slaves that have been freed or free men, you know, free 
mm. uh, black mm. people, you know, and they founded Chicago, then it became this massive center of black commerce and finance in the 50s, 60s, through the 70s. And it's how this kind of plays into all this. Like, the black advertising industry was was in Chicago. And it was enormous because around that time, Madison Avenue in New York worked out that, oh, blimey, actually, black people aren't all poor. You know, we need to advertise to them. And they went to Chicago where there was already a black advertising mm. industry and brought people in. Um Soul Train, the TV show, started in Chicago and then moved to Los Angeles. Um, Afrosheen was invented in Chicago, you know. And it's all this stuff. And also, um, Chicago had a really active um, black counterculture, especially in the arts side, you know. They had um, radical black theatres. They had... um, uh, music places, you know, all of this of the kind of the, I suppose it was almost the beatnik counterculture that would have been in Greenwich Village and that this was a black version of it mm. in Chicago. Um, wow. Maurice White of Earth, Wind and Fire was heavily involved in that scene. Shaka Khan was involved in that scene, you know, and it's all of this. And this all feeds into how he tells this story about um Chicago music. It's it's a, a really fascinating. Oh, that book. sounds fantastic. They both sound fantastic. Thank you. I'll be getting those. Um, I have to say, the Meet Me um, at um, Jim and Andy's is uh, I've ordered that for my husband for his birthday. He's a big jazz fan. It sounds oh, fantastic. Fantastic. He will love that. And finally, um, given the music is at the heart of this podcast, could you recommend us a book song, as we're calling it, a song that you love inspired by a work of literature or a writer do soundtracks count yeah i've always been a fan of soundtracks you know and uh there's a really interesting one there's a uh, it was a, an epic poem called hustler's convention that was uh written by one of the last poets yeah and it's a, a, a you know a, yeah epic i suppose the only it's about an hour long i think and um cool and the gang did the music for that and that's incredible Thank you so much for being on Songbook with us today, Lloyd. Um, Good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Um, See you next week uh, with another great guest for another episode of Songbook. Thank you so much for listening to Songbook. You can find links to the books mentioned in this episode, as well as our Spotify playlist, in the episode description. Songbook is presented by me, Jude Rogers. It's produced by me and Alice Lloyd. It's edited and mixed by Dan Jones and our music is by the one and only David Holmes. Thanks for listening.